Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on the acquittal of Hillary Clinton's lawyer, Michael Sussman, and a movie review of the new Top Gun Maverick film. Our first speaker today will be Sean Berkowitz, who successfully defended Michael Sussman of felony charges that he lied to the FBI related to the Trump investigation. Sean will give us the inside look from the defendant's perspective. Sean is an old friend of mine. We attended Hebrew school together, and we were opponents in high school debate tournaments. Sean claims he won. Sean is also famous for being the U.S. Attorney Special Prosecutor in the Enron trials. Our second speaker will be Robert Young, who is a retired Air Force pilot. Youngster, a.k.a. Farmer, will discuss the new blockbuster film, Top Gun Maverick. I want to learn how Top Gun has influenced a generation of fighter pilots and our military men and women in uniform. Our final speaker will be Darren Schwartz, who's one of my golfing buddies. Darren is the new What Happens Next movie critic, and he will provide a humorous take on Top Gun. If you missed last week's podcast, What Happens Next, check it out. Our first speaker was the tax expert, Chris Doyle. He explained the rules on how to leave high state tax jurisdictions. Our second speaker was Northwestern law professor John McGinnis. The topic was how law schools have gone woke and what the implications are for legal education and society at large. Buckle up. All right, Sean, please begin your six-minute presentation. My name's Sean Berkowitz. I was the attorney for Michael Sussman in the recent prosecution by John Durham, the special prosecutor appointed by then Attorney General Barr. I just want to make clear that the comments I'm about to give are my own and not my clients, and I'm also speaking based on the public record, not based on anything outside of the public record. That's for a couple reasons, including attorney-client information, as well as the fact that there was a fair amount of classified and secure information that was accessed during discovery. I want to talk about three things. Why did this prosecution happen? what actually happened at the trial, and what the implications are. Why did this happen? John Durham was appointed as a special prosecutor in October of 2020, shortly before the election between Biden and Trump. He had previously been assigned an investigation by Attorney General Barr into allegations made by Trump that the FBI and other individuals had created a hoax or a conspiracy of Trump's connections to Russia. You know, some people at the time said that he was investigating Mueller's investigation. When the election was coming up, Barr wasn't certain who would win, and he wanted to appoint Durham as special counsel, which would make it difficult for Biden's attorney general to fire Durham. And so for years, John Durham conducted this investigation that was fairly wide-ranging. My role was relatively limited. I represented Michael Sussman, who was an attorney at Perkins Coie. Michael Sussman is a nationally renowned cybersecurity and data privacy expert who had done some work in connection with the election. He was not the main point of contact for Hillary Clinton's campaign. His law firm, Perkins Coie, was her outside general counsel, but Michael Sussman's role was relatively limited. The special counsel investigations was far and wide, and they weren't coming up with anything. They ultimately came up with the allegations that Michael Sussman lied to the general counsel of the FBI when he brought the FBI certain information showing potential connections between Trump and Russia. 
and said that he was not acting on behalf of any particular client. The special counsel looked into those issues and found that Mr. Sussman had billed a substantial amount of time to Hillary Clinton's campaign and concluded that he was attempting to pass these allegations off as a concerned public citizen rather than on behalf of the campaign, and they indicted him in September of 2021. My own personal view as to why they charged him was that they were having trouble telling their story in a public forum, and although the charge against Mr. Sussman was fairly narrow, lying to the FBI, they were able to, in a 25-page indictment, tell a wide-ranging political conspiracy that fit the narrative that Hillary Clinton and others working at her behalf were attempting to create a false narrative of Trump's connections to Russia. And so that set up the battle for the trial. The government's case consisted largely of Jim Baker, the general counsel of the FBI, testifying as to what Mr. Sussman allegedly told him, information related to the FBI's investigation into the allegations, as well as the connections between Mr. Sussman and Hillary Clinton and her campaign. Mr. Sussman did not testify, and the jury was out about six hours and quickly determined that the government had not met its burden of proof in proving that Sussman had lied to the FBI. The key issues in the trial were as follows. Number one, Mr. Sussman went and told the FBI that he was not acting on behalf of a particular client when he was providing the information, that Mr. Sussman had gotten the information from a client of his who was a cyber expert, that the information showed potential connections via DNS links to a Trump server and a server associated with Alpha Bank, which is a Putin-affiliated entity. Mr. Sussman and his cybersecurity expert client, Rodney Jaffe, went to the New York Times Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist named Eric Lischblau, who indicated that he was likely to run a story, that Mr. Sussman and his client went to give the FBI a heads up. The FBI went to the New York Times after learning this information and asked the FBI to hold the story while they investigated it. The New York Times held the story. The FBI investigated it and later told the New York Times they didn't think that it was substantiated or there were innocent explanations. The New York Times ended up not running any story. Another news organization about a month later, Slate, ran a story that talked about the potential connections. Sussman had a client, but he wasn't there representing any client's interests. The, although he billed time to Hillary for America, and the story that would have appeared in the New York Times would have benefited Hillary for America, all three witnesses from Hillary for America testified that they were not aware that Sussman was going to the FBI. They didn't authorize him, and going to the FBI would have been against their interests. The government was left with a largely circumstantial case that Mr. Sussman had lied when he said he wasn't there on behalf of a client. The final piece of the trial was the FBI's investigation, which was, in my own view, a joke. Within a couple hours of getting the information, they largely discounted the allegations. Nobody ever interviewed Sussman. Nobody ever interviewed the cyber experts that had provided him the information. The individuals who looked into this at the case agent level were denied who the source of the information was. Both Democrats and Republicans have claimed some implications arising out of this that are reported in the press. The Republicans have said that the case was essentially dead from the start because of the jury pool in D.C. Democrats have said this vindicates 
Hillary Clinton, and Trump has tweeted that this makes him more likely to want to run for uh, president because of the information that came out at trial. My own view is that the jury system works. This was a case that shouldn't have been brought. It was a politically motivated prosecution that was designed to use Sussman to tell a, a broader conspiracy that's inappropriate. And thankfully, the jury listened to the evidence and did what juries typically do, which is get it right. Sean, why did Durham bring this case? Durham was appointed to look into whether there was an effort to perpetrate false information associating Trump to Russia, and he had been involved in Russian interference in the election. He brought this case because he was having trouble finding support of his mandate. He could very well have just issued a report that detailed all of the stuff that he found. But instead, he chose to bring a prosecution that, as I said, was incredibly wide-ranging in its allegations. He attempted to get the judge to allow evidence in as part of a broader conspiracy, his words, not mine, and the judge shut him down on the broader conspiracy evidence because the only crime charge was a simple one-count lying to the FBI. If he had gotten a conviction here, it likely wouldn't have emboldened him to have gone after other people, and he might have made an effort to immunize and get Mr. Sussman to offer testimony to go after other people. Politically speaking, nobody cares about Sussman. It was always about bigger fish. And it was also about the weaponizing of the FBI for political purposes. In this particular case, which was very narrowly focused, the evidence suggests that the FBI did nothing to interfere with or hurt the Trump campaign. Sussman brought evidence of DNS links, which are essentially internet lookups between a, a server connected to Trump and a server connected to uh, Alpha Bank, that his client had concerns about these connections and he was going to come out in the New York Times and the FBI should literally do whatever they wanted with it. He said, I'm not asking anything. And Jim Baker, the general counsel of the FBI, said as much. He didn't ask for anything and he didn't ask me to get back to him. He said, do with it whatever you want. And the information was sent to agents in the counterintelligence division in Chicago, an FBI agent named Allison Sands. It was literally her first investigation ever. She was fresh out of Quantico. The cybersecurity division didn't even look into it and didn't talk to anybody, the Chicago agent. And the first line of her report said that it was referred by the Department of Justice, which was absolutely wrong. They spoke to an Alpha Bank paid expert to say that the connections were innocuous. They asked to speak to the source of the information, but senior people at the FBI wouldn't tell them either who brought the information in or what the ultimate source of the information was. And within two weeks, they had essentially run its course. They said that the investigation was incomplete because they weren't allowed to speak to the appropriate people, and there was nothing more that could be done. And so it's hard to think of the FBI doing anything less with this information than they actually did. Was there ever anything to those allegations between Trump and Alpha Bank? What I can tell you is that Sussman was concerned enough about the potential issues that when he didn't hear anything back from the FBI in February, months after Trump had won, Sussman went to the CIA with essentially the same information. 
They, of course, said this isn't really in our wheelhouse. There was nothing in the trial to suggest that there was, in fact, a, a, a connection between the two, Larry. And so I don't want to suggest that there's something hidden. What I can say is that the FBI didn't do sufficient investigation to determine whether the issues were of more concern. Why did Sussman go to the FBI if he wasn't going for the Hillary campaign? Sussman, his profession was based on his relationships with national security. He interacted regularly with the FBI and with other national security agencies. He had been hired by the DNC to represent them in connection with the hack that had gone on in the summer of 16. The the Russians hacked the Democratic National Committee's emails and were releasing those emails around the time of the Democratic National Convention. Sussman was a known commodity with the FBI and other national security agencies. He was so closely connected to these entities, he had national security clearance and he had a badge that allowed him access to the FBI without having to go through all the security protocols. That's how trusted he was and what a close relationship he had with them. That evidence came out at trial. He was able to call somebody he felt was appropriate. He chose the general counsel who he felt was in a better position to determine what to do with this. He knew that there were rules relating to election issues, and if he gave it to an agent, it might have needed to be looked into. The fact that he gave them actual data to look into belies the fact that he was trying to hide anything. An analogy I used in closing was we came in with a jar of jelly beans and said, I think there's 5,427 jelly beans in here. But here are the jelly beans. Count them yourself and do with it what you want. You take it and do with what you want. But know that the New York Times is going to be publishing a story on this. You want the public to provide information to the FBI. They can determine what they want to do with it. And the concept that he was trying to hide the fact that he'd had any relationship with Democratic parties is absurd. He says, I'm not doing this on behalf of any particular client. I want to give you a heads up to help the Bureau. But his connection to the Democrats was very well known. Within days, he was meeting with the FBI on behalf of the DNC. And what's even more significant for purposes of this case is a concept called materiality. Did this thing he say, even if it weren't true, matter? Everybody at the FBI knew he worked for the DNC. And in fact, most of the people that looked into this who knew he was the source said he was a DNC lawyer. And so the concept that Clinton or the DNCs were trying to conceal that is absurd. The last person you would send in if you were trying to conceal involvement would have been him. Similarly, if he was really working for the Hillary Clinton campaign, why did he go to the CIA four months after the election with the same information? Did Sussman bail the Hillary campaign for that fateful meeting with the FBI? What we introduced at trial is he actually didn't bill the meeting with the FBI to Hillary for America. There were billing entries on a confidential project, which was thought to be the Alpha Bank project, but then there's no evidence that there was any discussion of going to the FBI. And on the 18th, he texted Jim Baker saying he was coming on his own behalf, not on behalf of a client. He then met with them on the 19th. He billed time on the 19th to Hillary for America, but he did not bill a meeting with the FBI in his time entries. And one of the things that I thought was particularly powerful in our closing argument is 
there were a dozen entries, both before and after September 19th, where Sussman did bill meetings with the FBI to the DNC or to HFA. Those were related to the hacks. And in his time entries, he said meeting with FBI. Other times when he had meetings, he billed meeting. There was nothing on the 19th that either referenced a meeting or referenced the FBI. And so the fact that he billed time on the 19th to Hillary for America is immaterial from our perspective to whether he actually billed this 20-minute meeting with Jim Baker. And in fact, we introduced evidence that said that the car that he took to and from the meeting was billed to the firm and not to HFA. Robbie Mook said on the witness stand in the Sussman trial that Hillary was involved in the decision to provide the media with the allegations about Trump and Alpha Bank. Why was this disclosure important in the trial? We called Robbie Mook, who was the campaign manager for Hillary for America, to establish that he was not aware of who Michael Sussman was and that Sussman was going to meet with the FBI to share these allegations, which undercut the suggestion that Hillary for America either wanted him to go to the FBI or knew he was going to the FBI. On cross-examination of our witness, the government elicited testimony from Mook that Hillary was, in fact, informed generally about information that the campaign had related to Trump's connections to Russia and was supportive of the release of that information. And the fact that the candidate was aware that her staff were doing opposition research and putting out information that they believed was credible related to these issues is neither surprising criminal nor relevant to the allegations in our case. It was given a tremendous amount of play in the press, but it was kind of like a nothing in the courtroom, Larry. I don't think it had any impact on the trial. They didn't even talk about it in their closing argument. I think that given the press coverage of that remark, it was exactly what a lot of people on the conservative side of the aisle wanted to come out and were interested in having reported. I think that they read far too much into the remark. In other words, some sort of suggestion that that the candidate was behind this huge effort to perpetrate a false narrative. And a lot of the confusion, I think, comes from the Steele dossier. But the Steele dossier had no real connection to our trial, nor to the testimony that Robbie Mook gave. Hillary Clinton was aware of the Steele dossier, approved the dissemination of the Steele dossier, or anything of that nature. People were mixing various narratives and taking what they wanted from that testimony. In terms of its implications for Hillary Clinton, there was some chatter that Jim Baker, who was GC at the FBI, was buddies with Sussman, and that that relationship undermined Durham's prosecution. I'm going to take issue with the question, Larry. In my view, Baker worked very hard to convict Sussman. He testified that he was 100% confident that Michael Sussman used these words in the meeting on September 19th. Most people aren't 100% confident of something that was said two weeks ago, let alone six years ago. And Baker testified 
multiple times beforehand under oath. He said the issue of whether he had clients never came up. Another time he testified under oath in an inspector general proceeding that Sussman provided the information on behalf of cybersecurity clients of his. And only after the FBI showed him other people's notes did he start forming an opinion over time as to what was said. What's significant about Baker is that he was under investigation criminally by John Durham in connection with a leak himself for over a year, and in our view, had concerns that Durham was going to come after him again. He said that he was friends with Michael Sussman, and yet he met with the special prosecutor's office 10 times to prepare his testimony. And he met with us zero times, despite the fact that we made specific requests of his lawyer to meet with us. He went out of his way to talk about how sure he was that these words were said. So the concept that he wasn't working that hard, I think, is belied by what happened. And I, in closing, remarked that he was afraid of being prosecuted, and he performed exactly as the special counsel wanted him to. What happens next with Durham's investigation? My own view is that this ought to be the the logical conclusion of his work. He's had several years to look into this. His two charges are against Michael Sussman and Tyshenko, who is an even less relevant player in all of this. I think he ought to shut down his special counsel's office, which is averaging about a million and a half dollars of taxpayer money every three months in expenditures. Any lessons on involving the FBI to investigate political campaigns? If you look at what happened with the investigation to Clinton's emails, I think it's fraught with danger. The FBI's job, just like any U.S. attorney's office job, is to follow the evidence and take it where it will, but to avoid publicizing you know, investigations that are not fully formed and to do their job not in a political way. And I think that's a really difficult line to walk. Sean, you're a former prosecutor in the U.S. attorney's office and you were the Enron special prosecutor. What is your evaluation of Durham's investigation? I was head of the Enron task force, as it was called. The Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington made the prosecution of crimes arising out of the downfall of Enron a strategic priority where they wanted to devote resources. The special prosecutor role that Durham is in is much different. It's a fairly autonomous type of situation. I think both situations, Larry, come with some danger. If you task a particular group of people or entities with looking for a crime, there can be an incentive to find one or to do something because you've devoted a fair amount of time, energy, and resource into that. And I think that you need people who are responsible and people overlooking that work to make sure that the people do justice not to convict somebody for the sake of convicting them. Accountability is super important, and that can get lost in a special prosecutor type of situation. Could Durham get a fair trial in a blue D.C. court with a mostly Democratic Party supporting jury? The special prosecutor chose to bring this case in the District of Columbia and specifically said throughout it was not a political case. And their theory was that Michael Sussman was a man of privilege who used those privileges to abuse the institution of the FBI. That was their theory and their theme that they used, which, if true, would have played very well to a jury in D.C. They 
could have brought the case in Virginia if they'd wanted to do that. Second, in terms of misplaced, look, the jury selection process, the government had the opportunity to exercise four-cause strikes. There was a lengthy questionnaire that was handed out beforehand. The parties agreed to strike a number of jurors who both sides believed couldn't be fair. Each side then had the opportunity to question each individual juror with whatever they wanted and had an opportunity to make a four-cause strike, meaning uh, a suggestion that there was a reason that they couldn't be fair. And then there were six strikes that the government could use for no reason at all. If this were an 11 to 1 situation with 11 voting to convict and one holdout, you could say it was a jury nullification situation. This jury came back in a split second, you know, five or six hours, and said that they were all aligned and that this was a case that the jury foreperson felt should never have been brought. This wasn't a failure of the jury system. Why didn't Durham just publish a report about the findings in his investigation of the FBI? instead of bringing the Sussman case? My speculation would be that it allowed him a vehicle to tell a larger narrative. I think they also thought they were going to win. When you've got a group of people all looking for the same mission and not evaluating the evidence as fairly as they should, you end up in a situation like this. I mean, it's really difficult for a criminal defendant to win in a federal trial. It's very difficult. And I think they felt that they had the wind at their backs that they had a fairly straightforward, open and shut case, and that they would win and that this would vindicate some of what they'd been doing and that they would be able to tell their larger narrative. We worked very hard to ask them not to bring this case, and I don't think that we ever got close to convincing them that this was an inappropriate case. I think that this is an example of our system working the way that it should, at least in terms of the jury, but not necessarily working the way that it should in terms of a case being brought against somebody who had to undergo incredible hardship, having an investigation hang over him for well over a year, and then eight months of uncertainty surrounding it. Every case is an incredible challenge. It was a privilege to do it, and um, happy to be done with it and to move on. Thanks, Sean. We now move on to our second speaker, who is Rob Young, a retired Air Force pilot. I became friends with Rob over 30 years ago when he was my brother Ron's fraternity at Northwestern University. Rob, today we're going to discuss the influence that the movie Top Gun had on your generation of Air Force pilots. But before we really get into it, I want to hear about why you joined the Air Force and chose a career in aviation. I had my private pilot's license junior year of high school long before some of my friends even had their driver's license. I was involved in general aviation flying up at Hanscom Air Force Base, and we'd see the weekend warriors. The first airplane I ever saw come in there was a C-5. I'm like, wow, anybody who must fly this has got to be the best pilot in the world. Three weeks later, a pair of F-16s pulled in and staring at these just Ferraris, if you will. I was fascinated by the fighter jet. And then, of course, watching Top Gun fuel that idea that, wow, you want to fly fighters if you want to be a real pilot. That was transformative. What was the reaction of the Air Force recruits to the release of Top Gun? I think it had a pretty dramatic effect on a lot of people in terms of piquing their interest. It glamorized and made it look easy, right? That's the whole point of the movie was that, it, oh yeah, we're just going to show up, brief a little bit, fly some, then we're going to go hang out, have a barbecue, play some volleyball drive our motorcycles around base like nothing could be further from the truth than like what are you talking about meaning top gun just looked like oh my gosh this is the life 
But nothing could be further from the truth in terms of the daily life of a fighter pilot. Between my sophomore and junior year of college, I did an Air Force ROTC internship at Homestead Air Force Base, and I got two rides in the backseat of an F-16. It was 45 minutes of the most thrilling time ever, but the preparation and the work that went into just one mission was unbelievable. That's when I realized the contrast between Top Gun movie and the reality of being a fighter pilot in the Air Force. We started our briefing at 0500. It was 12 hours of work for a 45-minute flight. And then the debrief itself was even longer. So it's extraordinary what the reality of flying a fighter jet entails versus what was portrayed. There are these debriefing scenes in both the original Top Gun as well as the new Maverick film. In Top Gun, Maverick's love interest, played by Kelly McGillis, a.k.a. Charlie, analyzes Maverick's flying performance in detail with the entire squadron. How real to life was that evaluation? In a real-life scenario, it's extremely competitive. And there's an old adage, you don't win the flight, you win the debrief. They'll send a four-ship up at F-16s on a training mission, and they'll do a bombing run, and they'll score every single practice bomb hit to the target. And they will critique each other. It is as competitive as any environment you can imagine. In one debrief of this particular bombing run, called a dive toss, and they go straight up, roll over, pull, roll in, and then drop their bomb and pull out. So it's almost like a roller coaster S turn. And certain parameters have to be met, speed, altitude, and the more altitude you gain here, the more time you have to acquire your target. What I remember about the debrief was he went up probably two or 300 feet too high. I gave him more time to acquire the target, so he might hit the target maybe three feet off, where the others were outside the circle. And they'd critique and say, yeah, well, hey, Slider, you broke the altitude. You went 300 feet higher. Of course you had a better accuracy. We're not going to give you that. And then he'd go in there and go, no, that's total horse. I didn't go that high. And they, they would literally argue down to, the, to, the, to the, out, the, 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 the foot. They would go back and look at the tape and prove each other wrong. And this went on for hours. This was a three-hour debrief where they nitpicked each other and competed down to the last bombing run for a score. And then whoever won the debrief basically won the day. And they'd start over and do the same thing the next day. In sports and business, learning from past experiences is critical. Is this the case as well in the military? There's an element of diminishing returns. Preparation-wise, I understood. You want to make sure that you cover all scenarios uh, for anything that can happen. But in the post-flight, I was amazed at just the stuff they wouldn't let go three-hour debrief for a one-hour flight. Same could be said for post-mission analysis on a large-scale exercise. We would run a special operations mission, and we'd break it down afterwards. And sometimes that would take three days of analysis. What could we have done better in the planning, in the execution, and ultimately the mission objective was achieved or not. You can plan, but when something throws a wrench, can we pivot quickly enough? So that's part of the analysis. In a real-time war environment or a real-world mission, you don't have that luxury. It's critical, and honestly, we do it very well in the Air Force. The overall accident rate versus the hours flown, it's incredibly low given the complexity and the danger of the mission. In Top Gun, the pilots and even the instructors get call signs. How do you get your call sign? When you get stuck with one early on, it stays with you throughout your career. Uh, especially in that fighter world. Uh, usually they developed in training. 
the first rule about a call sign is don't react to it. If you hate it, it will stick forever. <laughs> a friend of mine, a guy who flew F-15s, his name is Scott. He's a great storyteller. He loves to tell jokes. He always wanted to be called Joker. So he's always trying to champion for himself to be a call sign's Joker. Nobody would give it to him. He was short, and his name was Scott, so they called him Squat. And he hated it. But boom, it stuck with him, and he's always been Squat. And then he flies at FedEx, and they still call him Squat. Rob, what's your call sign? Mine was Farmer. How'd you get that? In pilot training, four flights into it, I was flying with an instructor, and I planted a few landings, he said. God damn it, Farmer, you just plant these things on the sled. Your nickname is Farmer. So Farmer was mine throughout training, and then when I moved over to a different aircraft in special operations, I was the new guy in the squadron. I got handed a bunch of old stuff, and I had one of these old dome World War II helmets that looked like Skylar from the um, comic strip shoe. Boom, somebody looked at me, you look like Skylar. So for my special ops career, I was Skylar. <laughs> that one stuck for a little while. That's how it generally goes. They're generally not something endearing. Like Slider, Maverick, Goose, those are all cool. A buddy of mine was nicknamed Wiz. He needed to use a pedal pack in an F-16 and he couldn't get to it. He ended up making a mess and they called it Wiz throughout. So that was Wiz. Call signs are very, very important. Great for camaraderie. Camaraderie is a theme in both Top Gun movies. The original film had a volleyball scene and the new one has a football scene on the beach. The instructors are trying to create teamwork. How true to life is that? So that is a very accurate, like volleyball and beach football are probably the Navy guys because they're closer to beaches and stuff like that. In pilot training, once a week we had some sort of gym activity. There was a game called Crud, and it's around the pool table. And it's an incredibly competitive game that started, I think, in the fighter realm. You can tackle, you can throw people into walls. There's lots of alcohol involved. The crud matches were infamous. Fighter pilots are uber competitive. You have this hostile dynamic between Iceman and Maverick, and we see similar relations between Goose's son and Hangman in the new movie. Is the fighter culture more competitive or mutually supportive? Oh, it's more mutually supportive. Certainly the egos are involved. A guy like Hangman in a fighter squadron wouldn't last 30 seconds. So you weren't surprised when Maverick didn't pick Hangman to be on that critical mission? There's always going to be the element of trust, no matter whether you like or hate the guy. Nobody trusted Hangman. And if that was real world, he wouldn't last very long in that squadron. In the opening scenes of Maverick, some of the senior commanders are giving Maverick a tough time because he's been a fighter pilot for over 30 years. It seems that a fighter pilot is a young man's game. When do fighter pilots age out? Most pilots just want to fly the airplane. There are a handful that want to go into the rank structure and do two tours, go to the Pentagon and then squadron officer school and the Air Command Staff College and Air War College, and they want to follow that progression. And then the other guys, after two tours, usually find their way into the Guard and Reserves who fly F-16. And in the Guard, guys fly forever. Is there more burnout in combat? So, very good question. Those missions are quite a bit different than any training mission because you're, you're going up against a real enemy. People are shooting back at you. And the bombs are real. There's a mental toll there that we're starting to understand what impact that's had on some of our veterans. Did you enjoy the new movie, Top Gun Maverick? It's a great thing to see. They talk about fifth-gen fighter going up in a, in a, against an F-18. I mean, that's, that's actually real time. So that was pretty interesting to watch them sort of address that. In terms of 
that mission in particular, I think they borrowed pretty heavily from Star Wars. I just kept thinking I was watching The Empire Strikes Back. These guys are going to have to launch two little darts into a tiny little hole and then the whole planet explodes. About five days after the premiere of Maverick, unfortunately, an F-18 pilot was killed in a crash in a training mission over the desert in California. That's real world. That should serve as a reminder to everyone who might be thinking this is all fun and games that no, there are still real-life consequences to a highly dangerous mission. In the original Top Gun, Maverick's partner Goose is killed in an ejection that goes awry. It really affects Maverick. He thinks about dropping out of Top Gun and questions what he wants to do in his life. How typical is that when you lose your partner? So in my experience, I've lost three, three, three friends due to military accidents. One of them was killed in Iraq. Another was killed in a 130 crash. And one of our flight engineers died on active duty back in 2000 in my squadron. And loss of a squadron mate, there's nothing worse, Larry. I hadn't thought about these guys except for a little bit over the Royal Day. So my friend Brian died in a crash in Iraq. His kids were 13, 11, and 9. His wife was wonderful. I flew with him a bunch. And they think it was a sabotage. And then Greg Fritz, he passed away in a C-130 crash in the mountains of San Juan, Puerto Rico. And then Carl, unfortunately, died unrelated to combat. We rely on each other to such a degree that it's a death in the family. That's the best I can describe. That's real. That depiction. On September 11th, I had a business meeting at Seven World Trade Center. And I hit traffic heading downtown on the West Side Highway. When I got to 23rd Street, I saw that one of the World Trade Center buildings was on fire. So I'm not making that meeting. I decided to hang out at my old apartment where my brother was living on 14th Street. The doorman let me right in. And as I entered the apartment, there you were, Rob, with your wife. Yeah. Looking out the window, we saw both towers on fire. Crazy, right? Lisa and I were actually headed that morning. We were going to go to Windows in the World. We witnessed the collapse of those two towers. My friend Michael Miller, who worked at Cantor Fitzgerald, died that morning. It was shocking, but it was different for you. I was sad and upset, but I would wake up the next day and it would be just like another. For you, it meant something else. You were to be called up for active military duty and sent to war. I had just finished my civilian training with Continental. September 6th. My actual last day of active duty in my special operations squadron was September 3rd. Came to a wedding, saw you guys on the 8th and the 9th, Steve and Bernie on the 10th. Lisa and I actually witnessed the second airplane hit that second tower. I saw it coming out of Newark and I thought, oh, okay, 737, I can see that. That makes sense. They're probably re-diverting him to see if he can find out what's going on with the first building. And all of a sudden we just see this thing driving to the backside of the South Tower. It's just like, Oh, my God. I mean, instantly, like, anybody who saw it live or in real time on the news knew we were under attack. I knew right then I was going to get recalled immediately. My active duty squad deployed within two weeks to the Middle East. All the Guard, all the Reserve, everybody who flew my type of aircraft had deployed by November. They were there for the duration. In the original film, the Top Gun squadron was an all-white unit. In the new film... The squadron is very diverse by gender, race, and culture. What does the current Air Force look like? So I would say in 86, that was accurate. My pilot training class was all white male. 
the first female fighter pilot. I think her name was Jeannie Flynn. I think she flew the F-15. That was groundbreaking in the 1990s. That was glass ceiling shattering type stuff. I don't think women were allowed to fly in combat until like 92, 93, 94. Interestingly enough, when I got to my special operations squadron, we had a handful of female pilots. Darcy Phillips, I remember flying with Darcy. She was one of the best. She flies for Delta now. In terms of ethnicity, active duty, Air Force has been doing a better job over the last 20 to 30 years of recognizing its shortfall. I think to today's squadron standards, you'd probably find a similar mix to the movie Maverick. But certainly Top Gun was indicative of the times for what the makeup of the squadron was. In the first scene of Maverick, Ed Harris, one of the admirals, opposes human-flown aircraft and is a big fan of the drone. Is this a big issue right now in the Air Force? Do we really need single-seat fighter pilots anymore? Do we even need dual crews in an airliner? That was compelling. He says, look, dinosaur, we don't need you anymore. The future is now. The use of drone technology is fascinating, and the argument can easily be made that you can fly an F-16 without a pilot and probably drop a bomb more accurately without putting that pilot at risk. They've been flying adversarial drones for target practice for 20 years. With a pending commercial pilot shortage, there's certainly discussion about single-seat cockpits for airliners. And if something was to happen to the captain, if he's up there by himself, you'd have means to land that aircraft via drone technology. It all exists Maybe in 20 years, we're going to look back and go, wow, Ed Harris was right. I do think that's true. I do. I don't want to be up in an emergency trying to handle a flight by myself with 150 people. There's a, there are a lot of moments where you absolutely must have two people in the cockpit. So we're not there yet. I wouldn't be surprised in 20 years if, if you see commercial airliners with just one pilot. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Rob, what are you optimistic about? From a military standpoint, I'm excited about what our men and women do on a day-to-day basis. What does America do best? It builds weapons. One thing that you know, doesn't get enough coverage is the skill and the talent at all levels of our military. It's just unbelievable what we're capable of. I'm now with Darren Schwartz. He's the official What Happens Next movie critic. We've never had this position. It has been unfilled for over two and a half years. Darren, welcome aboard. There are no benefits in this job. First of all, Larry, thank you for having me. My pleasure. You saw Maverick. You yep. rewatched Top Gun in right. preparation for today's call. Thanks for the effort. My pleasure. I guess maybe we'll start off with what are your thoughts on Tom Cruise? Where are you on, on Tom? Tom Cruise was a seminal part of my adolescence growing up. I, I know there's a whole Scientology thing and this, that, whatever. I'm thumbs up on Tom Cruise. You saw Maverick. I did. Did it move you? It did move me. It moved me for many reasons. I thought it was an excellent film. Can you articulate that message? Yeah. You're a movie critic, Darren. Come on. I, okay. I'm, I, as of today, I am movie critic, uh, which is wonderful. That's your title. Thank you. What um, happens next, movie critic? You forgot your title? I thought it was excellent. First of all, I think what was excellent was that you didn't have to see the first Top Gun for it to be an amazing movie. I thought the character evolution of Tom Cruise's uh, Maverick Mitchell was wonderful, and I thought the relationship between him and Val Kilmer was also wonderful because I knew a bit of the backstory because I just read about it online. Tell us a little bit about the backstory. Why is the Val Kilmer character important to you? Well, first of all, he was the antagonist in Top Gun, the original movie. He was Iceman Kazansky. He was a cool, by-the-book guy. Maverick was the Maverick. Like, figure that out. You know, <laughs> Hopefully people can figure that out by now after 27 years. He was the Maverick. 
or how many years it was. 36, and, um, 36 years. Was it 36? Yeah, no, 86. Way, 86. 86? Fair enough. So they clashed because Iceman thought you're going to put, you know, your wingman at jeopardy if you keep leaving your wingman. So that was the lesson that Maverick had to learn. They then actually became close uh, in the movie. But outside the movie, what I read is that Iceman, so Val Kilmer in real life, kept that character going and had that animosity present off stage. And so that actually created real conflict between him and Tom Cruise. And I guess Tom Cruise wasn't so much into that. So that was way back when. Fast forward to, I think about five or six years ago, Val Kilmer developed horrible throat cancer and he was not going to be in the movie. The producers either weren't going to put him in the movie because he really can't talk and he looks pretty haggard from the cancer. But Tom Cruise put his foot down. He said, I want him in the movie. We're not doing the movie without him. And I thought that was pretty cool. So he refused to leave his wingman from Top Gun, period. I think that is what's so interesting is that in real life, he didn't leave his wingman. He learned the lesson. It transcended from the screen to real life. He doesn't have many lines in the film. Why do you suppose that is? He's unable to speak. Yeah. The lines that he has were AI generated. So, you know, I'm not going to give anything away, I guess. This is not a huge spoiler. He was communicating by text, meaning they were together face to face and Iceman was typing his computer one line at a time. And there was one line he actually said verbally but what I've read is that actually was AI generated from his previous voice. It was not really him speaking. You rewatched Top Gun. Yeah. What were your impressions after 36 years rewatching that important classic? First of all, Tom Cruise looks the same. It's unbelievable. How is that possible? He is the Dick Clark of action films. I think it's grapefruit juice. I think it's natural. No, there's been no surgery. <laughs> is that true? Been, no, I have no idea. I don't know if it's grapefruit juice, but he's for sure had something done. I don't know. Well, he had his teeth done. I think his teeth look different. I don't know if you focused on that. He looks phenomenal. I love the hair in general. It's from the mid-80s, the fashion and the hairstyles and everything else. I thought the acting quality was a little more inferior in the original. Or maybe it was just dated from uh, then till now. Darren, I read the original Roger Ebert review of Top Gun 86, and he gives it two and a half stars. And what he says is that, look, the action scenes are fantastic, love is it, but the relationship with Kelly McGillis is just ridiculous and drivel. Where are you on the Kelly McGillis-Tom Cruise relationship from the original Top Gun? Well, first of all, let me just say this about Roger Ebert. For sure, a bleeding heart liberal. Yeah, for sure. I'm not criticizing. It is what it is. Anti-war, anti-plane, anti-maverick. So I think you have to put a pin on that. I think the Kelly McGillis relationship, there was definitely some evolutionary steps in the relationship that didn't happen. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, she was like, yeah, here's my address, you know, 5.30 p.m., don't be late. Did that ever happen in real life? No. No, <laughs> of course. And then also, it's 5.45, 5.50, and he's on the beach playing volleyball. Where's his priorities? Well, his priorities are to Goose, and he wants to beat Kazanski and the other guy, no one knows. And so he's on the beach. They're all greased up. Right. Okay? I mean, these guys probably put four or five layers of whatever it is, Crisco on them just for the sex appeal. And the two guys are playing are wearing tight shorts. Goose, no shirt also, wearing shorts. What's Tom Cruise wearing? No shirt, glistening, and tight jeans. I know it's been 100 degrees. What's he doing? How do you even move him? What's he doing? How do you move that fast? But they won, gets out of his motorcycle, and he shows up. And they didn't say it must have been 6.15. The food's cold. He walks in. What does he say? I got a shower. I want to take a shower. Yeah. Right, power move, strong move, ridiculous. Yeah. And she says, power move back, no, I'm hungry. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Yes, Kelly McGillis. 
absolutely. Call sign Charlie. And then after dinner, he said, I'm going to take a shower. But then he left. So when he arrived, he was taking a shower at her house. They had dinner. They said it's going to be complicated, acknowledging we now have a relationship. No kiss, no hug, no handshake. He leaves to take a shower. I think on face, yes, I agree with Roger Ebert. What did you think of the Jennifer Connelly relationship in Maverick? I think it was great. I love Jennifer Connelly. I think she is a wonderful, wonderful actress. I think she's got a beautiful mind. That's an Easter egg because she was in A Beautiful Mind with uh, Russell Crowe. So in the beginning of Top Gun, when they got called into their captain's office, in that back and forth reference, that one of the things that Tom Cruise got written up for was being with the Admiral's daughter. She was the Admiral's daughter. Very few people know that. It was amazing. Great actress. Great writing. You went to the movie theater to see Maverick. I had the choice, Larry, and I really struggle with it. Do I see Top Gun in IMAX or do I see it regular, normal, or juiced up with the sound and the sights and everything else, risk of paralysis, or whatever happens? And I said, you know what? I'm not ready. I'm not ready for IMAX. And I said, I'm going to go to the regular theater. And I saw there. Now, I'll also tell you this it's been such a long time, the logistics. Of, you have to get a ticket ahead of time. Yeah. You have to go in, you have to look at that map, and you choose where you want. And I strategically chose C10, C11, obviously. That's my go-to. There's a little bar there, and you can put your feet up on it, and no one's in front of you. And I get there. There's seven people in the theater. Right. Okay? They were in groups of three, so some lonely guy was by himself. Okay? Yeah, I get it. So we walk in, and I look, and I'm in like D4, D5. So I screwed something up. I'm like, well, there's, there's seven people here. It doesn't matter. So where is C10, C11? Well, C10, C11 happens to actually be four down from the guy who is a single who apparently doesn't realize that when you have your phone on, it's completely bright. It's ruining the experience for everybody. So he and I had a little thing. And then I say, we're in the wrong seats. Also, because no one's here. Hey, 10 minutes in. Yeah. 10 minutes in. Hey, hey, you're in my seat. These people are walking down. First of all, who comes 10 minutes late to a movie and we're in their seats? How ridiculous is that? So that's something. So yes, getting back into the logistics and the buying of the tickets and the choosing the seats is new, but I'm very happy to be back into the flow. Where were you on food and beverage in theater? Food and beverage, we brought our own. You can do that? I thought they have a strict policy against that. You hide it? Yeah, it's an easy, you put it in your side pocket and you kind of limp in, they don't see it. <laughs> Tell me more about how do you view it versus the original? First of all, 100% recommend people go see it. It actually represents the reemergence into society of movies. We're back. He put his foot down. All this I've read on the internet. People can look it up on the Google. He said, we're not doing this on home video. It's a summer blockbuster. I think it was his first $100 million opening weekend from what I've read, which is odd because you'd think that you know Tom Cruise is, is such a movie star. Mission Impossible, I would have thought, was a blockbuster right. as it was. Is it better than the original Top Gun? Maverick is 100% better than the original Top Gun. Before you decided to be the movie critic for What Happens Next, you were 19 years old when Top Gun came out. And at that part of Darren's life, you actively quoted films. You quoted Stripes. Mm-hmm. You quoted Risky Business. Mm-hmm. What did you quote from Top Gun? And do you still quote it now? Yeah. Like what? Talk to me, Goose. <laughs> That's it. I say it constantly. Talk to me, Goose. I said it to my younger son the other day. I said, hey, you need to get up. So he's just lying in bed. It's, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right? It's exactly 3 p.m. in the afternoon. 
And I'm like, you know, you're supposed to be somewhere in a half hour. It's an hour away. We should, I think it was his graduation. We should leave. And I said, talk to me, Goose. And when he got up a half hour later, I said, do you know where that's from? He said, yeah, Top Gun, which was amazing. I had no idea he'd even seen Top I said, have you seen Top Gun? He goes, yeah, of course. So you're saying it's intergenerational. And that's the success of Maverick. It's able to tap into this multi-generational experience in the culture. Yeah. It, what's interesting is my son and I were talking, you could argue that it's intragenerational. You know, I end each episode on a note of optimism. Darren, what are you optimistic about as it relates to Top Gun Maverick? Well, Top Gun Maverick is a story about family. Tom Cruise, Maverick Mitchell, was always trying to live up to the legend or lack of legend of his father. He got shot down in Vietnam, did not receive any medals. And as far as Tom Cruise growing up, as Maverick knew that his father didn't do it right. But yet when he went to see Tom Skerritt after Goose died, you remember Goose, they were in the free fall, right? And they had to punch out. Tom Cruise couldn't do the punch out. Goose punches out. He punches out. They eject. Goose breaks his neck, you know, upon ejection on the canopy. Probably cleared by the tribunal. Weird. He was totally clear. No fault of his own. So he, so he quits. He's like, Goose is dead. You know, talk to Goose. By the way, Goose was not talking to him. Though. He's dead. He's holding him in the water. He's dead. He's crying. He's dead. He goes to see Viper, which is Tom Skerritt. And he said, I knew your father. I flew with your father. What happened was not his fault. We were behind enemy lines. And when you get shot down behind enemy lines in Cambodia, the press doesn't want to know about that. So it was all soaked in the rug. And Tom Cruise says, we did it right. And Viper says, he did it right. Now it's a game changer. His father did it right. And now he says, I'm going to show up. I'm going to show up to graduation. He graduates because he has enough points to graduate. He's one of three teams that gets called to go to the golf because there's some stuff going on. We've got to bomb and kill some people. We're sending you out. Now it's for life. You're not playing around. You're not shooting for points. You're shooting for life. And he is inspired because he now knows that his father did it right. When Val Kilmer was diagnosed with throat cancer, he originally rejected treatment. After several years, his children finally talked him in to getting treatment, and it saved his life. The doctor said it saved his life. Unfortunately, left him with damage, so he really can't speak anymore. But again, it's another theme. The children, they didn't leave their women. They didn't leave their father. And on Father's Day, I think those things are important to recognize. Because as fathers, we all know that we've got, uh, we've got a very special job. Thanks to Sean, Rob, and Darren for joining us today. That ends today's session. I do want to make a plug for next week's show. I'm very excited that we'll have part two of our four-part history of the Second World War with Yale historian Paul Kennedy. The topics will be the Battle of the Atlantic and the War in the Mediterranean. I want to take you back to 1942, when nobody knew who would win the war. The Nazis had conquered France in a couple of weeks of fighting, and the Americans had just been humiliated at Pearl Harbor. U-boats were everywhere in the Atlantic, and they sank a substantial share of America's merchant marine that were sending boats to Britain to feed their people and to prepare for the invasion of Normandy. Paul will explain how the Allies successfully beat back the U-boat threat in the Atlantic. Our second speaker will be Ilya Shapiro, who recently resigned from Georgetown Law School after he was canceled. Ilya did not support Biden's decision to limit his Supreme Court nominee to exclusively African-American women, and he had to go. You can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, What Happens Next in Six Minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcast, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.